Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I am your host, Lance Morgan. Today we have Sean Slifer with his new book, um, So Much to Be Angry About, of Appalachian Movement Press and Radical DIY Publishing. He is, he'll be joined today with uh, Josh McPhee to be in conversation with him. But before I introduce them, I want to let you know that Skylight Books is now open for limited in-store browsing. So make sure you bring your mask and practice social distancing, but come on by. All right, well, Sean Silfer, Slif, Slifer, I'm so sorry. Sean Slifer is an artist, writer, and museum professional based in Pittsburgh. He is the creative director at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum and a founding member of the Just Seeds Artist Cooperative. Today, he'll be in conversation with Josh McPhee, a designer, artist, and activist. He's also a founding member of both the Just Seeds Artist Cooperative and Interference Archive, a public collection of cultural materials produced by social movements based in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, Sean and Josh. Nice to meet you. I'm sorry I just butchered. (laughs) After we practiced, I still butchered the name there. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Thanks for having me. No problem. Well, you have a reading for us today, right? I do. Yeah, I'm going to read a couple pages from the the very beginning of of the book, which will frame the the beginning of the Appalachian Movement Press in 1969. Perfect. I'm super excited. Take it away. All right. So the first part is in an intro that I found written by Tom Woodruff, who was one of the founders in a poetry chapbook where he describes the beginning of the press. In the fall of 1969, a few of us in Huntington decided we needed a print shop. We decided that this was our only hope in getting correct and full information to all Appalachians. We'd been through many years of education in our mountain schools and knew what a complete lack of any information on our culture and history and on our present day political and economic existence there was. We wanted to print pamphlets on famous Appalachians who were ignored in school books. We wanted to print pamphlets on our Appalachian heritage, on the fight against slavery by mountain people at the time of the Civil War, on the long struggle to gain a greater degree of freedom through organizing unions in the coal fields, and on the general spirit of independence and self-reliance of Appalachians throughout history. We wanted to print pamphlets about how today all our wealth is being taken from us, the wealth we produce with our resources and our labor that does not benefit us, but is added to the bank accounts of super rich corporate owners in Philadelphia, New York, and Pittsburgh. 
Early in 1969, after battling years of public resistance and organized conservative red baiting, a small group of students at Marshall University in the southern West Virginia city of Huntington finally gained official college recognition for their chapter of the National Activist Network Students for Democratic Society, or SDS. Founded in 1965, the Marshall SDS group's activism sparked a full-blown red scare in Huntington, aggravating rifts that ran along an already existing college-town divide. An op as opposition to the U.S. war in Vietnam grew nationally, an anti-war sentiment came to a Cabell County citizenry that might have seen itself as immune to the new left. Even the suggestion of student organizing at Marshall sparked local fears of violent street protests. The Huntington SDS chapter didn't survive the national dissolution of the SDS as an entity, which occurred soon after Marshall President Roland Nelson granted the group official status. But the local shift in ideas about activism brought on by the relentless battle for recognition from the college and community was profound. The activists were emboldened to develop resources for their movement, and the most crucial of these was a print shop. By the end of 1969, economics grad student Tom Woodruff and social worker ex-Marine Danny Stewart, both organizers in the resilient Huntington SDS group, began working to put together the equipment to start an activist-run printing press to serve the growing movement that they were working within. Civil rights activist Errol Hess, an electrical engineering and English graduate from Marshall, worked with Woodruff, Stewart, and others for six months to raise the $750 they needed to buy a suite of used but functional equipment. I shook my head when Tom showed me the press he wanted to buy sitting in the alley behind the printing company, but he got it running, said Hess. Although Hess remembers that the first thing to roll off the new presses was a pamphlet in support of a Levi's company strike in North Carolina, their first long-term objective was to print the regular paper that their SDS chapter had produced since early 1966, Free Forum. The young activists had been printing this magazine at the local shop Modern Press, where the owner was sympathetic to both content and cost, but anti-left pressure on the net shop eventually made the relationship untenable. Woodruff and the others had their print shop up and running in Huntington by early 1970. Two 30-year-old A.B. Dick offset presses, a binding machine, a paper cutter, tools to stock a darkroom, and other related gear eventually formed the basis for a working, if relatively scrappy, print shop. With the no-frills mission of, quote, getting correct and full information to all Appalachians, the young printers named their nascent print shop Appalachian Movement Press, or AMP planting a regional flag in the national trend of activist print shops that were run by and for the movements in which they were born, as well as filling a pragmatic niche where equipment was needed to realize their own local needs, Woodruff Stewart and the others began developing a radical independent regional press with the overall mission of up uplifting Appalachian people to self-determination. That, um, that was a great, that's a really great frame for, for us to jump in to, um, to thinking about like the uniqueness of this press and this project, because I mean, as, as someone who's studied movement presses for, um, for a long time, almost all of the ones that uh, most people know about are in major urban areas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Chicago, they're from LA, they're from uh, San Francisco or the broader Bay, New York. Um, what brought you to, to first learning about Appalachian, Appalachian Movement Press and uh, 
to sort of getting an interest in, in, in what would become eventually this book, um, tracking down the people that were involved and sort of doing this uh, archival work of sort of unearthing a project that outside of Southern West Virginia, almost no one knows about. So I, some of my work with the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, which is which is in the Southern West Virginia coal fields had had already, you know, put me in a position where I was learning about these more regional events and histories, stories and um, organizations that, that really didn't seem to have a lot of exposure outside of the region. I live in Pittsburgh, but I travel down to Southern West Virginia quite a bit. And uh, well, I was actually down there for a wedding just a few years ago at the Appalachian South Folklife Center, which was founded by Don West and Connie West, um, who figure prominently in Appalachian Movement Press's history. Uh, they founded this Folklife Center in 1965, I believe, but I didn't know anything about it. I was there for, for some, some friends' weddings, and uh, the... <laughs> One of the people getting married, actually, when he was making his rounds, handed me this this little, you know, what looked like a photocopied zine. I would have called it a zine, um, this little poetry chapbook. And he said, oh, Don West, uh, you know, founded this place. You should check this guy out. You'd really love him. Uh, you know, he was really incredible. And, and uh, you know, then continued making his, his rounds uh, around this giant wedding. And uh, I sat down and looked at the chapbook, and on the back of it was this this logo, this miner's pickaxe. It just said Appalachian Movement Press, and I knew what a movement press was, but I'd never heard of this place, and uh, or really any movement press in the region at all. And that also, I assume, backdated the 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 publication I was holding to potentially before I was born, so sometime in the mid 1970s. Uh, and I remember taking a picture and texting it to you and to, to Alec Dunn because you guys run the, the Signal um, Journal of Political Graphics and Culture. And I, I figured if anyone had heard of this thing, you guys would have heard of it and you hadn't. And then pretty soon you said, why don't you actually go digging for these guys and figure out what they were about and write about it for Signal, which I agreed to do. And then sat on for several months uh, because I really had no idea where to start um, and then eventually wrote a, a, what ended up being a sketch for the larger book that that uh, is now out on West Virginia University Press. I think the fact of the people who ran Appalachian Movement Press not being particularly concerned with their own authorship um, or their own uh, printing for them seemed to be a means to an end. So the idea of Appalachian Movement Press as an entity had never seemed to be important enough to them to, to perpetuate, left a gap in the record where I had to, to, you know, maybe libraries had things that were printed by them, but they weren't cataloged necessarily under that Appalachian Movement Press as a banner. Um, so that made some of the initial research pretty difficult, but um, I got really obsessed. And that's how I had to pull it off. <laughs> well, the obsession is, has, uh, in the end, produced a, a gorgeous book and collection. And, and part of, um, like, 
it's it's it seems funny to say this it's almost like a backhanded compliment but uh it is sort of surprising in a way that it's gorgeous because unlike a lot of the other movement presses um amp is not particularly well known for their aesthetics uh, <laughs> like there's another recent book about a movement press by danielle Aubert um about the detroit printers co-op uh-huh um, yeah which um you know, they produced uh, an interesting and wide range of materials, but one of the things that a lot of it has in common is it has this very kind of bespoke uh, amateur design sense that is very interesting and is like very popular today. Mm-hmm. And um, that can't really be said for, for AMP. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, talk a little bit about like the, maybe they're like almost anti-aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for it, certainly one of the early things for me, you know, I'm I'm an artist and, and in the work that you and I do with Just Seeds and that all the artists in that cooperative do, you know, we're always kind of uh, knocking around within the history of, of design on the political left and then, you know, pushing at the margins of, of you know, what can what can be considered to be political graphics. And then I come to something like Appalachian Movement Press, and it's it's so stripped down and austere. Um, you know, one word that I've I've heard described to it as workmanlike. Um, and I think that you know that it's probably true that at first I was less interested in what they were doing for that reason because I think I wanted to. I think I was looking for. Uh, some aesthetic behind all of that but in fact the, the the austerity is the aesthetic I think they were so concerned to get uh, various types of publications just into people's hands the distribution the printing and the distribution was really important but as long as the layout was clear and coherent they were good to go and so most of the covers that you'll see in the book are are text only um, just very bold text title um author and then you know even when they changed their logo to say it used to say labor donated at the bottom and then at a point they changed it to say union labor donated and they didn't even if you look closely it's like the word is just kind of clearly pasted on there the word union um you know they weren't fussy they did as i found out deeper into my research and you'll see in the in the book there's a, a children's book in there for example they did work with artists but they didn't work with artists in any kind of like consistent aesthetic way um yeah do you think you know the late 60s and early 70s were um i mean to use a term that's being thrown around a lot today even you know it was a moment of intense kind of culture war mm-hmm. in like the weirdos and the straights, so to speak, you know, the hippies and dropouts and long hairs and, um, and the man. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. and, and I, I, do you think that there was a conscious decision to try to speak to as broad and mainstream an audience as possible, that they were trying to sort of circumvent the, a set of assumptions being put on them about being sort of freaks and in hippies and dropouts yeah i think so i mean it it's i i don't know enough about i never got a sense that they really considered themselves to be freaks and dropouts to begin with most of the core people in the press but i also think that um 
you know some of what you're asking is probably reflected in the in the initial uh, struggle for the the SDS chapter in Huntington. I mean, the you know what they were looking to do was was form a, a chapter of a national organization, and even the fact of them wanting to organize in any kind of leftist sense was um, there was such a backlash to that and the idea that that there would be these violent street protests and whatnot that they they had to push really hard just to even kind of say no look we're just like a, we're just planting a flag of anti-war movement here but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to overrun your town uh with counterculture i mean it doesn't it, it it almost doesn't appear that there was what you might call a counterculture so much as you know people who were you know primarily concerned with with workers rights uh people's history um and uh, an increasing movement against uh, strip mining as a few examples and black lung um you do get and i talk about this in the book a little bit there was a magazine out of mingo county west virginia which is which is all the way down south um called the mountain call and those folks were were really uh a bit more counterculture in a way that I found to be uh, really unique and really kind of a hybrid. You know, they were they were managed to be kind of dropout culture and pro union at the same time. They managed to have a very playful aesthetic, uh, you know, artistically and, and use a lot of photographs and stuff for for cultural critique. But but at the same time, were uh, in community with other organizations, which were which were still hyper local and 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 focused on like everybody in the community, they were plugged into the Lock, Stock and Barrel, which was a restaurant in Williamson, West Virginia, that um, that really kind of walked a line between. They had counterculture people there, they had bands playing all the time, but it was also a popular restaurant for third shift railroad workers, and uh, and they had to appeal to everybody. Right. So um, I think the, the magazine is very much born out of that culture. And so it doesn't feel as wing nutty as something out of like, you know, maybe the Bay at exactly the same time. But I think for the for the era and the area, it was very wing nutty, I think, to a lot of people. So speaking of wing nutty, let's let's let's, <laughs> let's go back and talk about these kids books. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, because th that is also something that seems relatively unique in the sort of pantheon of movement presses. Um, I mean, I'm sure there were other kids books that were made, but they certainly weren't, um, they're not what people remember. Like I, I don't, I can't think of a, a single other um, movement press that sort of consciously and focused on producing um, literature for children. So, so like, tell us about, you know, Lazar and Boone. Um, tell us about the hillbillies. Tell you know these these really fascinating sort of strident. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, there were only the two, but they're both really, really fascinating. I mean, I when I when I first stumbled across across Lazar and Boone in a catalog listing for the library at at WVU in Morgantown. Um, I didn't really understand what it was I would find. And then I remember pulling it off the shelf and going, oh my God, this is, it, it's not, it's a children's book about direct action against strip mining machinery. 
and there it starts out in an idyllic valley um, and uh, it's called Apple Valley and in Apple Valley everybody basically lives uh, a sort of carefree life uh, plugged into the land um, there's a lot of kind of pre-strip mining uh, storytelling that, that starts this way everything was good before the before the bulldozers came and there's a frog and a mule uh, that's Lazar and Boone who are best friends and when the um, it's called the the title is Lazar and Boone stop strip mining bully and the bully actually ends up being a bulldozer that shows up to town to to wreck uh, the mountaintop to get coal out and initially they go and try to talk to to bully the bulldozer but the bulldozer doesn't respond because it's just a bulldozer and it's not personified and and um so then they decide that the next best thing they can do is blow up the bulldozer which they do and then they're able to use the the scoop of the bulldozer to 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 reflect the sun back into heaven and communicate with god afterwards it was a really striking story and i just i just was really glowing after i read it like my god i've never even seen anything like this um and i was able to track down uh margaret gregg and and mike clark who who wrote and illustrated it and talked to them and they were actually a little bit i mean to them to them the the fact of blowing up the bulldozer was not necessarily the focus of the story so much as um well, this is something that has started to happen in the region at this time. Anyway, there was a history already of direct action in in small communities against against uh, not just you know specifically the equipment, but um, you know strip mining uh, in generally as it was happening. And and there's a there's a you know the idea of talking to an inert bulldozer is you know clearly an allegory for attempting to redress grievances through available. Um, you know, channels legally for people, which they really didn't have. Um, so it, it uh, you know, they were both a little bit frustrated that it might be remembered solely as a children's book about direct action, but to them that was just part of part of the possibilities that that will happen if people aren't listened to. Meaning, and the, oh, go ahead. The hillbilly story is. Um, is a little bit different because it, it it's similarly talking about you know you have these people who have been uh, living again in an idyllic holler in the mountains who have been tricked into mining coal although in that book they're mining these green coins called profits and then they they send all the profits to this guy in the city who eats them and, and then they don't in the meanwhile the air and the water and the land are being poisoned through the process of mining these gold these green coins that book um is a little bit different because although it follows the same structure of uh you know people attempting to redress grievances by approaching in this case the mayor of the town who's in the pocket of of the coal company which was common and is still common um in the region and they don't get anywhere with that and in fact he's able to hypnotize them and send them back home uh thinking that everything is actually okay and that they're not actually being poisoned and that book ends with them just buying a bunch of gas masks and um, saying, well, we'll just let the next generation sort it out. Which is a bit hard to swallow, but, uh, but I think, you know, sets up really uh, a kind of hopelessness that I think a lot of people actually did feel.
and still feel. So it's it's interesting because it sounds it's it echoes so much echoes the story of, of Orax, which was published around the same time. Exactly. Um, so it's like clearly was sort of in the air. So it's almost like the. I mean, it's it's in my experience, very few people think about the struggle against strip mining as being part of the emergence of an environmental movement. Mm -hmm. But that's clearly what these books are positing, that mm -hmm. this is the struggle that has as much to do with our relationship to the earth as it does our relationship to our labor capacity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it, you know, they are walking a fine line between coal as the dominant resource and an and employer in the region and, and the, the increase in, in environmental destruction that, that comes from that particular style of mining. It's not as though environmental destruction doesn't happen from deep mining, but strip mining and, and you know, even more recently, the, the style of strip mining that we call mountaintop removal. I mean, these are, these are almost last ditch effort coal mining techniques that, that really, they require less workforce. They often don't require a unionized workforce or don't have a unionized workforce, and they're significantly more destructive. It's, it's interesting just in the context of um, an emergence of a, a new kind of writing of our kind of environmentalist history in which there's, I think, increasing recognition of um, marginalized communities kind of at the forefront of a lot of these struggles, whether it's indigenous struggles against uranium mining mm -hmm. um, or black and uh, Latinx communities, struggles around air quality in urban areas and around refineries. Um, and it feels like this is, is very much parallel to that, but is not being talked about a lot in a sort of a larger popular context. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating that you've pulled out this, this material that's 50 years old and is, is talking about that exact thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it can almost be depressing to turn up uh, artifacts from, from 40 or 50 years ago that, that, that quite literally mirror artifacts from, from movement now. One of the things that I found in one of their late catalogs was a, uh, a sticker that, that the people running Appalachian Movement Press at that time made. And, and the sticker said something to the effect of, uh, you know, don't drink this water. This water has been contaminated by, uh, you know, a set of, of chemicals that they list. And yeah, caution, drink at your own risk. The Environmental Protection Agency has determined that this water contains carbon tetrachloride, chloroform, and other cancer-causing chemicals. That's what the sticker says. That sticker was made in 1977. I saw a version of that sticker pop up around the shale fields in Pennsylvania and New York, uh, where we live, probably just about seven or eight years ago, not that long ago. You know, the struggle at, you know, it, this is a natural gas extraction method that that sticker was referencing, but here in 1977, they're talking about the effects of strip mining and it's exactly, 
it's exactly the same tactic. The sticker was meant to be put on drinking fountains. That's yeah. what I forgot to say. So you would slap it on the drinking fountain so that people would think twice about drinking that groundwater. I actually saw a sticker just like that on a drinking fountain in Prospect Park here in Brooklyn like two years ago. <laughs> I don't think See? it's actually true in this case, but it's the, the intent that counts. In any case, yeah, it makes you think about where your water is coming yeah. from. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, I mean, that leads to an, another thing, which is like, um, the book, maybe by the nature of it being a book, is, is really focused on um, the printing of other publications, the printing of publications and the distribution of books and pamphlets. But we've got this kid's book and you just mentioned the sticker, like what other ephemera was Ant producing and, and how was that being distributed and how far and wide did it get? Um, you know, what's the, what's the, the, the larger, both cultural and sort of physical footprint of this material? I mean, you mentioned in the book that some of these pamphlets were kept in print for, you know, a decade or more multiple print runs, what does that look like? Like what's the, the reach here? It, on the one hand, it's kind of hard to know because they didn't intentionally save or catalog anything that they did. So if I found out about it, it, it was largely through circumstance or some connection, or I'll say, for example, I have two calendars and I mentioned them in the book briefly that you know, there was I I saw a mention of them in a catalog, but the only way that I found them was through through a collector's website where I just happened to run across them for sale. One of them being like very very heavily illustrated by by a guy who I could never find, um, and the other one being really austere and just full of sort of like labor history dates. Um, looked photocopied. Uh, a lot of that stuff, it's just. You know, posters, I found a couple of posters um, that were sent to me by one of the one of the people who worked for AMP in the last couple of years that, that he had illustrated um, and a greeting card that he had made. A lot of the things that rolled off the presses there, I think were like, who knows where they went. I think a lot of the other magazines and show flyers and movement posters that I could find from the region in the era may well have come out of Huntington, but it wouldn't say that on the poster. So I'll never know. Um, on the other hand, the stuff that, you know, those children's books, as far as I know, only ever saw one printing, but you had other things like uh, Jim Branscombe's pamphlet, An Annihilating the Hillbilly. I mean, that was kept in print that saw a lot of different iterations and different publications, but Appalachian Movement Press kept that thing in print for pretty much the entire decade that, that they were around. And they did the same with a lot of Don West's poetry and, and cultural critique. Um, the, the pamphlets that you can still find now through collectors sites, or even the things that libraries are likely to have if they have anything at all, will be some of these, these pamphlets that were just you know, in high demand and, and just kind of disseminated around the country. Um, I have bought things from bookshops as far away as San Francisco. I have no idea how they got out there, but they, they got out there eventually in the last 45 years. 
Um, and then I had them shipped all the way back to central Appalachia so that I could write about them. Um, you know, Don West's stuff in particular, when I very first started researching these folks, I was led to believe that it was Don West's printing press. He was a very, very, very active communist union organizer from the early 1930s uh, through, he died, I think, in, in the late 1990s. I'm drawing a blank on the exact date. Uh, also a Christian preacher, also a poet who saw a lot of early success with his poetry um, on a national level before he, he withdrew from the literary world intentionally to focus on, on uh, regional activism in Appalachia. He was one of the founders of the Highlander Folk School originally, um, but left after, after the first year or so of organizing it. So his work figures really large in our catalog and continues to be, or continued to be republished for 10 years, and that's why I thought it, it was actually all Don West printing at first. I didn't know it was these students from Marshall University. And in one of the Don West biographies by James Lawrence, it says that people kind of jokingly referred to AMP as the Don West Press uh, because they were so focused on his work. They really were his only publishing mouthpiece for about a decade. So you can find that stuff now kind of scattered all over the place, but for a lot of people aren't really clear on who Don West is outside the region. He's very revered in central Appalachia, but outside of that, I don't know how well he's, he's known. You, you mentioned in the book that, um, I don't know if you come out exactly and say it's sort of a, a contradiction, so to speak, but this sort of tension between um, this group of young firebrands, so to speak, that are like coming very much influenced by the new left. Um, and that they're like sort of um, guiding light is this very old left mm -hmm. kind of figure. Um, but I actually think that's not as unique as it seems on the surface. I actually think that there's a lot of, there was a lot of that going on um, that maybe was downplayed because people were really trying to hype up the new part. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> of, of the new left. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that when you, especially even when you look at these print shops, there's often like some curmudgeonly guy in his 60s that had been a CP person that knew how to run a press that was tinkering <laughs> in the background to make things work. Yeah, to actually keep the press running. Exactly. Yeah, they were already buying old presses, so yeah, somebody had to get them back up and going. Well, that's, this is another thing that like, in, in, in this moment that we're in now where, um, you know, we all have basically these pocket computers that have this endless stream of images and information via social media. Like why, why work on a book now that's about not just like printing. I mean, printing still exists in our world. I mean, we still read, um, or a lot of us still read, um, you know, physical books, but a niche of a niche, you know, like the, the a, a level of printing that um, really doesn't exist anymore, uh, at least with offset presses for the most part, you mm -hmm. know, because mm -hmm. they've been replaced by photocopiers, 
um, and other kind of office technology. Like, what what were you? What did you want to pull out of this? Like, what is the what is interesting or useful about this to you in this moment of like sort of full on tidal wave of of digital information? I mean, I think some of it is just to be totally honest, my own personal stubbornness about needing to, to ferret out a story that's been buried. And then the harder it, it got, you know, at times, the more I, I dug at it to try to figure out what was going on and find these people and, and speak with them. Um, I also think that, you know, in some sense, the the process of pulling something like this out of out of history and and uh, offering it up as important that does work for people in the region to see in fact like there has been an active left in central Appalachia all along and it 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 is powerful for people here to to see that and feel it and know that that there's someone behind them. And I think it's also, it works outside of the region for people to start to understand a larger complexity about what Appalachia is, who, who, who is actually in Appalachia, what does Appalachian even mean um, in a contemporary context. So yeah, you're right that it is a niche within a niche. And I, I, and I kind of laughed to myself at many times working on this, like, okay, now I have the largest collection of Appalachian movement press literature probably in the country, but you know, sort of who cares? <laughs> like who's, who wants that from me? But I think it's really important just for, even for people who, I have met some people who just found one of the pamphlets at a thrift store or something. And just the fact that it even happened, the fact that that pamphlet, which looks like what we would now call a zine was created by some people in their 20s and early 30s, you know, maybe before the finder was born is really, really powerful because then you don't feel alone. You don't feel isolated in your sense of like what you what you hope for your region or community or what you hope politically. You see actually that people have been fighting. I mean, I think we do work like this with the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. I mean, it's very much about trying to, um, give a voice for storytelling and, and the history to people in the region, particularly to the stories that, that were intentionally buried about the struggles between 1900 and 1921 that we talk about. But it's also for, for people who don't know that much about the region to come in and see it from a different light and actually start to, to, to complicate their understanding of what, what it might mean to be in a multi-generational coal mining family um, and what those struggles look like and see them in the national context. Um, so should, you want us to wrap it up? If you guys have any last things, I was just coming to give you guys the last, um, any last things you guys wanna say? I mean, I don't need to necessarily say this now, but it's just on my head that the fact that, that these pamphlets are showing up in the catalogs of these lefty ephemera distributors makes me think that that's pretty good evidence that they were, like these people mostly get their stock by buying collections from old lefties. 
So my guess is they were circulating, the AMP stuff was circulating in the larger new left. Maybe not at the same level that like the Black Panther paper was, but at a level at which it's they were squirreled away and kept and eventually, like when people passed away, their kids sold them to dealers. Um, so, yeah, right. so, you know, um, it probably had more reach than they even knew. I think you're right. I've I've definitely spoken even to older generation activists here in Pittsburgh about what I was doing. And often they they are kind of like, oh, yeah, I think I do remember that. I think I do remember those pamphlets, but um, I think it sort of it speaks a bit to the mission of of AMP that they don't know exactly who it was that was printing them. I think this is true nowadays, you know, the really the workhorse parts of a lot of our movement organizations are not necessarily the most romantic parts to look at and are not necessarily full of the kinds of personalities who sort of toot their own horns and, and, and you know, come out as, as uh, distinct individuals to pay attention to. Rather, it's, it's, you know, a collection of people working in collaboration who uh the product and the movement the product that they're creating for the movement the literature is the important part and so it doesn't uh it's easy to forget who is behind it i mean all of the people that i interviewed went on to do a lot of other really interesting things with their lives and they just kind of like passed through this print shop for a couple of years in huntington west virginia and moved on and i cold called them 45 years later and asked them about this thing that they'd been doing that they hadn't thought that much about once i asked them about it they were able to open those doors in their head and start to remember some of those stories and things, but no one had ever said that that particularly mattered. Um, and I mean, I think even that's that's why this stuff never really has been stored and presented as as a critical piece of of the movement. And hopefully, this will help do that now. All right. Well, that was. I think that was a great last way. To, a great way to end it. Um, so thank you both for being on our podcast. Um, do you have any last things you want to say to the independent bookstore community as a whole? I think Josh should say something too, but I will say that I just walked into the bookstore up the street from me, White Whale Books in, in Bloomfield in Pittsburgh for the first time in over a year. Uh, and it was a wonderful feeling to, to just walk around and be completely overwhelmed by all of these titles that I feel like I should be reading. It's wonderful to walk into a brick and mortar and talk to the person working there about their recommendations. Uh, I, I only bought one book, but I wanted to buy about 15. And it still feels weird to like handle a book and then put it into a bin where they're gonna, uh, you know, wipe it down with alcohol before they put it back on the shelf. But, but that's the world we're living in right now. But, uh, yeah. but it's really wonderful to see that. Well, that's great, Josh, you? I, I can't wait. I mean, some people do yoga and I go to bookstores. I mean, yeah, no, I get that. Um, I decided to work one for that reason. Work out one for that reason. Exactly. Just, but... it's, it's how my brain works. Mm -hmm. Like just looking at and cataloging and processing all of the information um, in a bookstore. And I just so desperately miss it. Um, my local shop still only does curbside pickup. Mm -hmm. um so i'm thankful for that and i i definitely try to buy books in a way just to support them um 
as much as anything else and to support authors and publishers. But it's just not the same. And um, I just think that the community that can, I mean, I'm not, it all feels cliche at this point, mm -hmm. but maybe that's because it's true. But like the communities that develop through and out of bookshops and communities of book readers are powerful and unique. Um, and we need to figure out how to maintain them in a context where it's, it's increasingly difficult. Yeah. Well, I think things like hearing you two speak and getting your books and other authors' books like this will definitely help. So thank you guys for being a part of that and for coming on Scally Books Podcast. Um, this has been Sean Slifer and Josh McPhee. Um, McPhee, I can't know. I don't know what I'm pronouncing. Name. I'm really <laughs> emphasizing the A there. Um, but yeah, you too, Sean. You can, you can buy Sean's book at Skylight Books, um, so much to be angry about, um, or your local independent bookstore. Go give them a visit. They miss you. <laughs> but yeah, no, this has been Skylight, the Skylight Book Podcast, and we hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books Podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.